My name is Einat Wilf, and this is the We Should All Be Zionists podcast. Each week, I'll be reading one essay from my latest collection of essays book, We Should All Be Zionists, on issues facing the Jewish people and Israelis today, conflict, peace, religion, politics, past, present, and future. At the end, I'll be joined by columnist Blake Flayton for a discussion on the themes of the essay and how they apply to contemporary Israel and Jewish life. You can purchase your own copy of We Should All Be Zionists anywhere you get your books. Thanks for listening. Let's start. Today I will be doing something different. We'll be reading a recent essay of mine that is not in the book We Should All Be Zionists. And I wanted to read this essay titled Zionism as Therapy because it discusses the course that I gave at Georgetown University a couple years ago on Zionism and anti-Zionism. And in a few weeks, um, a series of YouTube videos about the course that essentially tracks the main messages and material of the course is going to be available for everyone to watch for free uh, on YouTube and going to be available for people to learn essentially as if you were in my course. So this is my opportunity to tell you a bit about what it might be like for you. Zionism as therapy. In the fall of 2021, I spent a semester at Georgetown University teaching a seminar on Zionism and anti-Zionism. When I wrapped up the final class, one of the students approached me. The course was more valuable, she told me, than dozens of hours of therapy. I have spent my life thinking, writing, and speaking about Israel, Zionism, the Jewish people, anti-Zionism, the conflict, and the path to peace. But I had never taught this course before, and now I was both moved and baffled. Why did she feel the need for therapy, and what was it in the course that offered it so powerfully? The course argued that while Zionism is one of history's most successful revolutions, it has faced since its inception not only diplomatic and physical obstacles to implementing its vision, but also intellectual opposition to its very idea, which continued even once Zionism materialized in the form of the State of Israel. The course explored how every type of Zionist thought, political, social, religious, was opposed by a certain brand of non- or anti-Zionism. These would be presented through a set of pairs loosely paralleling historical developments. The first section, under the theme of politics, paired political emancipation as a non-Zionist alternative of Jewish integration into European society with the rise of political Zionism as a response, among other things, to the failure of emancipation. The second pair, under the heading of labor, explore the ideas of socialism, Bundism, and communism as non-Zionist utopian visions for Jewish equality, paired with labor Zionism and the critiques each of them had towards the others for being either too universalist or too particularist. 
The course then moved to Zionism and anti-Zionism as reflected in the three monotheistic theologies. Jewish theological anti-Zionism was paired with Jewish religious Zionism as the theological post-facto justification for the success of secular Zionism. Christian anti-Zionism presented the theological basis for Christian and later Western opposition to Jewish sovereignty. It was paired with Christian Zionism, exploring the later theological development of Christian support for Zionism. We then turn to the world of Arab Islam, exploring Arab anti-Zionism against the background of the establishment of the State of Israel, ending with discussion of Soviet anti-Zionism and the intriguing possibility of the rise of Arab Zionism. The course syllabus consisted almost solely of primary sources. Following a short introduction of historical context for each pair, the students engaged directly with the original texts, learning what Zionists and anti-Zionists had to say in their own words. Much like yeshiva students, they became part of an intergenerational conversation by engaging with the arguments and counter-arguments from the time. They were asked to make every effort to insert themselves into the conversation and so gain a sense of how the debate unfolded in real time and how the success of Zionism cannot be understood as inevitable. One unexpected outcome of the course was that the current tenor of debate was placed in perspective. When students were exposed to how Zionists wrote about emancipated Jews and how communists and religious anti-Zionists wrote about Zionists, the current discourse seemed tame by comparison. If anything, the late 19th and early 20th centuries emerged as an era of Jewish disagreement and division far greater than our own. But more importantly, the direct engagement with Zionist and anti-Zionist texts accounted for some of the therapeutic effects of the course. When reading what Zionists had to say in their own words, the toxic descriptions of Zionism as emblematic of the world's evils from racism to genocide melted away. Instead of a cabal of evil conspirators intent on wrecking evil in this world, these Jewish writers were desperately trying to carve a path for surviving as Jews in the modern era. Rather than powerful, privileged Europeans seeking to dispossess another people, these were powerless and thoughtful Jews wrestling with how, against all odds, they could go about building a modern state in an ancient homeland that was mostly barren but in places also populated. Instead of the idea of Jewish nationhood and self-determination presented as a unique aberration in human history, Zionism emerged from the texts as no more than the Jewish manifestation of the concurrent global transition from empires to nation-based states. In contrast, reading anti-Zionists in their own words exposed the total, often sinister, worldview that was the basis for their opposition to Zionism. When the deep roots of anti-Zionism were exposed, current justifications ostensibly tied to recent events revealed themselves to be nonsensical. Once the ancient Christian theological need for Jews to remain stateless and powerless was studied, its secularized Western manifestation in the obsession with Israeli power became understood. Once the history of blood libels with its particular emphasis on Jewish ritual lust for the blood of non-Jewish children was seen, 
It's secularized version in news headlines about the Israel Defense Forces killing children could no longer be unseen. Once Soviet anti-Zionism was studied as a scrubbed heir to the Tsarist protocols of the elders of Zion, the current academic discourse on apartheid racist colonial Israel was traced to its original authors long before post-facto justifications for those epithets were made. And once the ideals of political emancipation, Bundism, and communism were understood as genuinely believed utopian alternatives to Zionism, the verdict of history on the practical impossibility of these paths for Jews became tragically apparent. Direct engagement with Zionist and anti-Zionist texts made the present clear, in the original sense of the word clear, as transparent and see-through. Students acquire the ability, almost a superpower, to see through the current discourse and understand Zionism and anti-Zionism for what they are. Zionism emerged as something normal, a national movement of self-determination of a people with a historical connection to a specific land at a time when many people rose to establish nation-based states to replace receding empires. And anti-Zionism emerged from the text as abnormal, a unique ancient theological obsession that presents itself to every generation as newly justified. And so students discovered that nothing being said today about Zionism, especially by anti-Zionists, is new. While they did not study directly about the present, by the end of the course, they had acquired the tools to understand the present far better than most people who expressed themselves on the topic. The students had joined the ranks of a select few who had firsthand knowledge of the foundational texts of both Zionism and anti-Zionism. It was that connection between today's discourse and its ancient roots that made clear to me why therapy was even needed and why the course was effective in providing it. Therapy was needed because anti-Zionism is but a recent manifestation of an ancient attack on individual and collective Jewish life. The course was effective in providing it because Zionism itself was formulated as a therapeutic response to that ancient attack. Anti-Zionism in the West desperately tries to hide behind the claim that it is nothing more than criticism of Israel. But its targeting of Jewish students and faculty, its promotion of Jews who are most virulently anti-Zionist, and its relentless dynamic of constantly moving the goalposts mean that it is experienced by many Jews as incessant bullying, a dynamic I call the pound of flesh. After all, William Shakespeare had it backwards. Throughout history, it is not the Jews who demanded the pound of flesh. Rather, it was the Jews who were bullied for a pound of flesh, usually metaphorically, but all too often, literally. When the pound of flesh is metaphorical, the demand is to mutilate one's Jewish identity as the price of social acceptance and toleration. Sometimes the mutilation is visual, demanding that Jews be less visibly Jewish in the public sphere. Sometimes it involves severing elements of Jewish identity, such as denying any special Jewish collective solidarity or the Jews' connection with the land of Israel. Sometimes nothing less than a ceremony of exorcism 
in which Jews mutilate their identity in public is demanded. These exorcism ceremonies require Jews to repeat with enthusiastic amends any claims made about Israel, however outlandish. This is what I have termed the placard strategy, equating Israel, Zionism, and sometimes just the Star of David on placards with the greatest evil du jour. And so the ceremony proceeds. Zionism equals racism. Amen. Zionism equals apartheid. Amen. Zionism equals Nazism, of course. Zionism equals genocide. What else? Oh, Zionism now equals white supremacism. That's a new one, but sure. There is nothing natural and understandable in this progression. It is the pure expression of a relentless dynamic of bullying at work. This bullying has ancient roots. The historian Tom Holland, in his excellent book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, which my students read, described the centuries-all dynamic as a program for civic self-improvement that aimed at transforming the very essence of Judaism. Holland describes how Western ideas of enlightenment and human rights have, when it came to Jews, been nothing more than a secularized version of the ancient Christian dream that Jewish distinctiveness might be subsumed into an identity that the whole world could share, one in which the laws given by God to mark the Jews out from other peoples would cease to matter. Despite this being a dream that in modernity was garlanded with the high-flown rhetoric of the Enlightenment, Holland explains its roots go all the way back to Paul. Faced with this all-encompassing new old campaign, Jews could either sign up to this radiant vision or else be banished into storm-swept darkness. Holland clarifies that if this seemed to some Jews a very familiar kind of ultimatum, then that was because it was. The ancient roots of the pound of flesh dynamic make it relentless. It always wants more until there is no more flesh left. Either Jews are no longer Jews, or they are no longer alive. Throughout history, Jews have discovered again and again that no amount of flesh is ever sufficient. This kind of bullying takes an emotional toll. It is not a matter of intellectual discourse. It operates at the deepest levels of one's being. Almost all Jews have been subjected to it at one point or another, and recognize it viscerally. Even when students could not explain it, their emotional reaction to anti-Zionist attacks on campus was the typical response triggered by persistent bullying. Anti-Zionist bullying was taking its toll on those Jewish students who refused to join its ranks. Even I, who study and teach Zionism and anti-Zionism, find myself at times exhausted after engaging with Western students on the topic, interactions that increasingly include personal attacks and charges of evil. It is not pleasant. It takes an emotional toll to be told that what you hold dear, even who you are, is evil. It would be much nicer to be lauded by students for concurring with them that Israel is evil. The temptation of being liked in a world of likes is powerful. 
I can understand why young students on campus would choose to either stay silent or even join the bullies in the hope of being left alone. But what Zionist thinkers like Theodore Herzl reluctantly realized is that they would never be left alone. Herzl observed how anti-Semitism rose in the 19th century as a progressive idea, popular among students on campuses, such as the one in Vienna where he studied law, by giving a modern, scientific-sounding facade to ancient ideas about Jews. This convinced Herzl and fellow Zionists that as much as modern Europeans claimed to uphold ideals of equality, liberty, and fraternity, they could not bring themselves to apply these ideals to Jews. Observing nearly a century of European emancipation, Herzl and his fellow Zionists realized that no matter how much Jews strained themselves to be acceptable to their fellow Europeans, changing their clothes, their language, even their very conception of being Jews away from a collective identity to a personal faith, Europeans would just come up with new cover stories to tell Jews the same old thing they had always told them. You do not belong. Although they didn't call it bullying, Zionist thinkers understood Jews were prey to the pound of flesh dynamic. Often harsh in describing the Jewish condition under European domination, some of their criticisms could hardly be differentiated from those of anti-Semites. But whereas anti-Semites believe the Jewish sickness to be inherent to Jewishness itself, Zionists believed it was the result of European actions, situational and conditional, and the systemic powerlessness forced upon the Jews of Europe. This was the seminal insight of Zionist thinkers, that powerlessness corrupts no less than power. That power corrupts is an ancient teaching shared by biblical writers no less than Greek, Roman, Hindu, and Chinese ones. But Zionism argued that powerlessness corrupts no less. Zionist thinkers observed that a people whose very survival depended on the frequently absent goodwill of others would inevitably be corrupted by the need to ingratiate itself with those in power. At its core, then, Zionism was a therapeutic project. Zionism was about healing the Jewish sickness engendered by the contorting and corrupting effect of centuries of powerless exile. Since, in the Zionist analysis, this Jewish sickness was the result of living at the mercy of others, healing that sickness would require the Jews attain power of their own. Zionism sought to correct this corruption of Jewish existence by making Jews masters of their fate, powerful once again, normalized political actors among the nations. Zionism provided both the diagnosis and the cure. But precisely because the cure was so effective, Jews had to be told it was actually toxic. Those who bullied Jews throughout the centuries needed Jews to believe the problem was with themselves so that they would be amenable to efforts to make them no longer Jewish. Like an industry that profits by keeping people sick and therefore invests heavily in making simple, cheap cures appear toxic and unreliable, civilizations that require Jews to feel they needed to be less Jewish 
had to paint Zionism as so toxic that no Jew would want to touch it. But touch it exactly what the Course did. Successful therapy taps into the molten lava that runs deep below the surface. Jewish leaders, rabbis, and organizations who thought they could escape the onslaught by avoiding discussions of Zionism in Israel discovered that the attacks never relented. The more they ran away, the more they were chased. Jews were told that Zionism was a sin and therefore they had to disavow it. In reality, Zionism was the cure that endangered the entire malignant project of de-Judaizing Jews. This is why the course proved so therapeutic. Students discovered that their ailment had been diagnosed long ago and an effective cure already found. Exposing the ancient roots of anti-Zionist bullying provided young Jews with the understanding that while it appears tempting to disavow or contort Jewish identity to buy a reprieve from the bullies, this reprieve, if ever given, is at best temporary. Rather, Zionism already formulated a response to that bullying by refusing to play into its ever-increasing demands. Bullies everywhere prey on weakness and shame. But if one is neither weak nor ashamed, they move on to easier targets. The course offered students the ability to understand the genealogy of attacks Jews face today, while simultaneously generating an empowered appreciation for the vigorous debate and revolution that produced Zionism. It created excitement and confidence in the modern Jewish project and identity. By robbing anti-Zionists of the power to shame them, students of these century-old texts discovered they had the power to rob their bullies of their prey. If anti-Zionists are met with Jews who are proud Zionists, who embrace their Jewish identity fully, and who understand the nature of the attacks against them, it is nearly impossible to shame them into handing over another pound of flesh. What they realized by the end of the course was that the only effective, tried and tested response to anti-Zionism is, well, Zionism. So, we have with us today uh, David Chazoni. And David is the reason that I wrote this essay. He invited me to write this essay for a collection called Jewish Priorities. So, David, thank you for asking me and allowing me to write this essay to be able to reflect on the course, on what it meant for history. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about Jewish Priorities and what it is. Well, thank you so much, Einat, for having me. Um, I have to say, I absolutely loved your essay, and it was such a thrill to be able to put this out together with uh, so many other important and varied essays. But this one really struck me very, very profoundly, um, as I think it has already struck many, many readers who have uh, seen it online now. Um, Jewish Priorities originally was conceived as sort of the first time ever that we're having a pan-Jewish conversation where a single book would capture the whole width, width and breadth of the Jewish people, whether younger writers and veteran writers and, 
and all different religious denominations and left to right politically, Israelis, diaspora Jews. Uh, really, it was an amazing collection where each writer was asked to uh, imagine they were giving a TED talk to the entire Jewish people. And they were allowed to, you know, kind of say one important thing, one priority for the future of our people. And the purpose of it was really to to establish peoplehood through a book, not necessarily to talk about peoplehood, but to create an example of it as if we had a big Thanksgiving dinner table where the whole family was sitting around it, including that cousin that you despise, but that you have to have them over because that's what a family is. Um, and really nothing else like it occurred, has, has happened in the literary world that I know of. Um, and then came October 7th, and suddenly the, the meaning and purpose of Jewish priorities shifted because the book was published on October 24th. We had a whole series of events, and Anat, I was thrilled to have you participate in some of them in New York and in Palo Alto. Um, and I had expected that the venues would cancel the events because we have a war and everybody's devastated and in trauma and shock. And instead, the message that I got overwhelmingly was, we need these events right now. So uh, they were very well attended with dozens of speakers and hundreds and hundreds of participants, uh, both online and in person. And the message that I was getting from them was, there has never been a point in our history, in our in our lifetimes, when it was so important to have Jews of all stripes and of all political affiliations and of all religious affiliations sitting around the same table and talking about our future together. But it became much more urgent and much more focused. So it was really a, a, an incredible moment, I think, to have this book come out when it did. And now that we are starting to publish the essays, and I'm so glad that I was able to put yours out first among all of them, because I think that the, the core question of what Zionism really is gets to the heart of what so many diaspora Jews are asking themselves right now about uh, uh, who are we? What is Jewish pride? How are we to stand up in the face of what seems to be the eternal anti-Semitic claim, the, the pound of flesh, as you put it so eloquently in your piece. Um, that, that's uh, the story of Jewish priorities. Thank you, David. It's really been a remarkable journey that in many ways is only starting. So I wanted to thank you. I will continue to be with you in this journey. And um, good luck with this remarkable project. Thank you so much. I would just want to add for the benefit of our listeners, um, if you want to see a not in person and you live in Jerusalem, you should come or are visiting Jerusalem on February 7th to the Begin Center because a not's going to be there and I'm going to be there along with Yossi Kleinalevi and Isabella Tabarovsky and Hillel Neuer. Um, a really important event. It's going to be both in person and uh, virtual uh, through the Begin Center of Jerusalem. Yes. Hope to see you there. <laughs> I will see you there. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. You too. Bye. So Anat, obviously this is an essay that has so many themes and messages, important messages packed into it. It feels like the you just constantly turn into a different subject and then it all comes together at the end. And each subject is very important to understanding really the totality of what a lot of Jews are feeling and thinking right now 
in Israel, in the United States, uh, and a lot of Jews who are tuned into these conversations, either online or, you know, in articles and the keeping up with breaking news. And, you know, the topic of emancipation, which is a huge part of your Zionism and anti-Zionism course, uh, it sort of kicks things off with you know, Theodore Herzl saying we are a people, one people. And I think you mentioned in in your own words that with that line, he declared a whole century of attempted European emancipation dead. But yet there are so many people still who don't think that emancipation failed, who look at this chapter of history and see the Holocaust and that's it. They see the Holocaust as the ultimate anti-Semitic crime that was committed against the Jewish people. And that was the reason why Zionism needed to happen. And that was the justification for Jewish nationalism. They don't see a pattern decades, if not centuries before the Holocaust, of the attempt to integrate Jews. The att- it wasn't just an explosion of anti-Semitism that 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 had been continuous from medieval times before the Enlightenment. There was an attempt to, quote-unquote, fix things in the name of modernity and to bring Jews into the public sphere and to make Judaism a question of uh, private life, individuals, man's relationship with his family, with himself, and with his creator, right? They can sit next to us in the opera box, but everything else, no. As What is the line? As, a, as individuals, everything, as a nation, nothing. People are intransigent in refusing to see this particular way of action that had a very particular consequence. I'm wondering why you think that is, why the subject of emancipation is really kind of gone from discussions of anti-Semitism and Zionism in Israel. So I'll share with you that um, one of the things that drove me crazy many, many years ago, still does, is this notion that Israel exists thanks to the Holocaust, right? That somehow uh, the story is uh, the final solution was not so final. There were some leftover Jews in Europe. The European powers didn't know what to do with them. They happened to control the Levant and they just threw uh, the Jews there and they threw the Jews in. And as a result, Arabs came out and that's why Europeans are somehow responsible for the Palestinians. And It's a very, very common idea. And I remember when I started more speaking, uh, especially in the U.S., and that notion, even by people who are love Israel and pro-Israel, that Israel is somehow a gift by guilty Western powers for the crimes of the Holocaust, um, I found it really odd. They knew nothing about Zionism pre-World War II, For them, it emerged after the Holocaust, and I almost made it my mission to tell the story of how the state of Israel was actually supposed to come into being, as I say, not so that never again, but so that never at all. And I wrote a screenplay about Herzl. I thought maybe if they'll see um, a movie or a TV series about his life, they'll understand But what I realized as I went around with that screenplay, with that story, is that it evoked too much unease. Because with the Holocaust, that's like crazy, different, extreme. But Vienna in the end of the 19th century feels too close to home. 
You know, if you're looking, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, you look at the pictures, the images, Nazi Germany, that is sufficiently alien that you can feel comfortable in your current uh, place. But when you read about Vienna in the 19th century, cosmopolitan, the Jews are the cream of the crop of Viennese society in culture, literature, uh, newspapers. Herzl was essentially a top editor of the editorial page of the New York Times, of the Neue Freie Presse, which had that level. I mean, to understand the level of Jewish integration, Jewish success uh, in this cosmopolitan, modern, secular, forward-looking city, and to see how Herzl begins to see the rise of anti-Semitism. And we think today of anti-Semitism, I some, sometimes I make the macabre joke that Hitler gave anti-Semitism a bad name. But I, I ask people to realize that at the end of the 19th century, anti-Semitism is a progressive, modern, scientific ideology. It's the wave of the future. It is, co- it is common and popular among university students, the educated elites. That's where Herzl encounters it among his colleagues. So that just feels too close to home. And I think people don't want to deal with the fact that that's the story. Yeah, I mean, I read an article that came out this week in the New York Times about the revival of diasporism. And the the to the author's credit, he does make a point to offer uh, a counter-argument uh, in saying that most Zionists believe that the concept of diasporism or a Judaism without Israel is heresy. But here are some people who, for either religious or secular reasons— either religious being we don't need a land to still keep connection to God and our faith and mitzvot, and then uh, the secular, which the secular people in the article who, of course, brought up the Bund and brought up the um, the Bundist revolution, which we all know how it ended. But I think that is very true, that that is why there is this aversion and this romanticizing of, of, of emancipation in the diaspora and aversion to looking at how history uh, judged that particular movement because it's comfortable and it's very uncomfortable to say that it's a consistent failure, that it's continuing to fail. Um, Another thing that I learned from this essay and also from your class, which I had the opportunity to sit in on uh, at Reichman University last year, was the fact that all of these things that we're discussing are very modern and Zionism is a modern phenomenon, and a lot of anti-Zionism, even though you mentioned it has theological roots, is a modern phenomenon because of the clashings of democracy and rights and borders and empires and states. Um, And that seems to be a little bit at odds with what a lot of Jews like to say, and that is that Zionism is a 3,000-year-old or 2,000-year-old, because that's when the expulsion happened, project that has been cooked into the, the 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 very religion and very culture and essence of the Jewish people. And it's really inseparable from Judaism. It's who we are. And every time I push back on that and I say, yes, but it also has specific political connotations that arose under sp- specific political conditions and specific political leaders made it possible, only possible really in the Enlightenment age, 
I get a lot of angry responses to that. People are very offended by that contention. So I'm wondering if you could speak on that discrepancy. Okay, so hopefully we can make people less angry. <laughs> uh, of course, you're, people who say that essentially are a third right. Uh, because that's Zionism has essentially three parents. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain uh, what they are. The first parent is indeed the ancient historical uninterrupted connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel and the idea that the future of the Jews, even when they're in exile or especially when they're in exile, is the restoration in the land. That's a, that's the essence of what we call the Jewish religion, but it's not really religion. It's a system that keeps the Jews together as a people until the moment of restoration, which is why there's no such thing as religious Jewish religion that does not have the element of the land. You can ignore it. You can try to contort your way out of it, but it's baked into it. But if that's your explanation, if you're saying Zionism is a 2,000-year-old movement, then you have to explain, then why does the state of Israel not emerge in the 5th century or the 10th or the 15th? If it's been always the same, you're failing to make a historical argument which is why they're only a third correct. The other two explanations are the ones that explain the particular moment in time. So the other parent of Zionism is what we discussed, the failure of emancipation. Without understanding how excited Jews were about emancipation and the course deal with that, and then the devastation of the disappointment that Europe will not be able to live up to its ideals, we cannot understand why Zionism was born, and why it was attractive ultimately to so many. So that's the second parent. Without the disappointment from emancipation, Zionism does not emerge in the 19th century. Which goes back to our first question about the failure of emancipation. Exactly. If that's a crucial parent of Zionism and people refuse to see the validity of it, then obviously people aren't going to be Zionists or find suspicion with Zionism. Precisely. And then the third parent is the entire political transition from empires to nation-states based on the principle of self-determination, of which Zionism is merely the specific Jewish case. But Czechs and Poles and Slovaks and Ukrainians, and I mean, they're all part of that same story. And again, that happens in the 19th and 20th century. So only when you take the two other parents can you explain why the state why Zionism emerges as a political movement in the 19th century and why the state of Israel emerges in the 20th with the final collapse of empires uh, so I always uh correct people on that hopefully that I mean I don't think there's any need to to be angry I mean I'm not denying that at the source is the deep historical continuous Jewish connection to the land of Israel but ultimately we have to give an answer and why it happened at a particular moment. I think people get angry with me because they assume I'm making an anti-religious argument, which I'm not. I'm simply saying that what you said just now, that there is a reason why Zionism emerged when it did as a political movement that had practical goals and was able to achieve them in the time that it did. That, exactly. that was That depended yeah. on a lot of different factors other than simply the Jewish religion, which is even older than 2,000 years old. Um, so before I... 
ask my last question, I'm just going to say that a huge part of this piece is in fact the topic of bullying and the pound of flesh dynamic that is present on university campuses and in left-wing spaces um, and is in fact a historical phenomenon. And I just want to remind our listeners that the first episode of this podcast, the BDS Pound of Flesh, really goes in depth into that psychological issue and um, the differences between um, um, Jews throughout history and Jews now and feeling that they need to give up something. Um, Because I really want to keep this conversation centered around what we're actually discussing in therapy, which is Zionism. And so my last question is if you could go into a little bit more detail about the Tom Holland part of the essay in which he makes the case that the modern modern infrastructure of human rights and enlightenment values that contribute to our world order um, are just really an extension of Christian theology that sought to flatten Jewish identity into something that everyone could have a piece of. I think it's a really important point, but people have asked me about it like online, what exactly I mean when I relay it to them. So if you could be a little bit more descriptive. Certainly. And for me also, it was a a moment of realization. So Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, is a remarkable uh, historian, writes a lot on the Roman Empire, for those who think about it. And... um, (laughs) And this is uh, this is about Christianity, and really, he goes through Christianity, and it's a remarkable book, the Dominion, that that really shows that Christianity made the West, and the West is essentially secularized Christianity, and everything that you see t- today, even when it's secular, needs to be understood as just a, a kind of. A uh, manifestation of a certain Christian idea or theology. So, specifically, he deals in a, uh, several chapters with the Christian um, kind of relation to Judaism, and he begins with Paul, who had the universalizing idea. I mean, that was, as a Jew, his notion that to bring the universal message of the one God but untether it from any connection to a specific people, to a specific land, to laws. It's about the replacement of all these onerous laws with the idea of emotion, of love, of the laws being written on one's heart. So Paul essentially, more than Jesus, Paul is the creator of Christianity, Paul is the one that has this universalizing ideal. And for that, Jewish particularism has to end. So with the birth of Christianity is already embedded in it, it's aversion to Jewish particularism. And that is the case until in the 17th century, you have with the Reformation, the rise of Christian Zionism, the Christian support for Jewish restoration that inverts it and actually makes the support for Jewish particularism and for a Jewish state part of a positive Christian theology. But that's a much, much, much later development. And what Tom Holland shows is that the world that we call today the Enlightenment and human rights, he has a great phrase that he says, that nothing was more Christian 
than claiming that human rights are universal. He said Catholic essentially means universal, all-encompassing. He basically says Christianity, it's one of its major revolutions is it, was its claim to universality, that the message fits every human being in the world. And that is, again, the aversion to the particularism of its source, of its parent. So even when it gets secularized into the system of, hu- of human rights, of enlightenment, what Tom Holland says is that it still is Christian in its universal ambition, that nothing is more Christian than to claim that those values are universal. And because that is part of it, he says baked into it remains the aversion to Jewish particularism. And that is why we see so-called human rights organizations, international bodies, being the places that you see more, most intently, the battle against Israel as the signifier of Jewish particularism. And he traces it essentially all the way back to Paul. And what he says is it was always an ultimatum to the Jews that the price of Jewish tolerance and acceptance in Christian and Western society was that they submit to the universalizing process until they can no longer be recognized as particular, as different. And I think this also goes to your first question. The United States is still substantially a pro-Zionist country because it is built more on the theological strand of Christian Zionism, the one that supports Jewish particularism as part of a Christian identity. But what we're seeing today, and what, and again, Tom Holland talks about how wokeism is another strand of Christianity. It's not, and he shows how it goes all the way back. So when we're seeing anti-Zionism in those circles, it is very much the continuation of the baked-in uh, aversion to Jewish particularism, to the idea that the collective Jew, that the particular Jew uh, stands between this world and a universal utopia. Of course. And of, of course, that universal utopia always looks different depending on the era. But the point that you're making and the point that Tom Holland is making is that the point is that it's universal. Yes, that it's universal. So whether the values are, oh, we all are in God's heaven and, 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 you know, the end of days happens and Jesus walks on earth and all of our sins are forgiven in the pre-modern era, whether it's, uh, the rise of the nation being the only nation, whether it's, uh, a communist utopia or whether it's now where the idea of individualism and nationalism is passe and, and, and something that belongs well in the past it's the fact that it's universal principles that always leave the Jews out. That's the point. Okay. <laughs> we could talk about this essay for a very long time, but thank you so much, Anat. 
And of course, you can pick up your own copy of Jewish Priorities uh, in hardcover or a digital copy at jewishpriorities.com. And you can learn all about and receive updates on the upcoming uh, Zionism and Anti-Zionism series with Dr. Aina Wilf that's going to be released on YouTube. You can get updates for it at levanastudios.com. That's L-E-V-A-N-A studios.com. Thank <laughs> you.